Hello. So, pray with me, please. Lord God, I uh, come to you and ask that you would use this feeble mind of mine to help us explore the truth and the grace that's present in your word. Um, open hearts and minds tonight to both your truth and your grace as they are revealed in Scripture and through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that your word would go out and be effective in the lives and the hearts of the people who are here for years to come. In Christ's name, amen. All right, can we turn off those lights up there, please? Like the, the bright ones up by the fans? Awesome. Oh, that's much better. Thank you. You can leave the fans on and the lights off, and that's better. Thank you. Okay. Hey, so uh, how many people were here last week? Raise your hands if you were here last week. Okay, great. Um, you got part one of Matters of the Heart. This is part two. It wasn't going to be a part two. We were going to move on, but there were so many questions about the sermon last week. It raised so many issues in both uh, morning church and night church that uh, we decided as staff on Tuesday that I needed to revisit the same passage. So that's what I'm doing. Um, some of you in years past may have heard um, the stories I'm about to tell. Now, <clears throat> I talked last week about soft hearts and hard hearts, that the the diagnosis that Jesus has for the human race is that of a hard heart, especially when it comes to marriage. And what I was saying was that the way that God keeps our hearts soft in marriage is by taking those calloused places in our hearts, and then he matches us up with somebody who has calloused places in his or her heart, and then those begin to rub against each other and maybe wear down those calluses. I call it the loofah effect. Um, and very often, we're totally unaware that this process is going to take place until after we're married. Such was the case with my wife and I. Um, I alluded to this last week. I didn't tell you the story. Some of you have heard them in a sermon I did a few years ago, but I'll tell you now uh, the, um, the car story and the chain lock story. Uh, <laughs> when Mary and I actually got married, I brought the car into the relationship. It was a 1976 Chevrolet Nova two-door coupe. And, uh, you know, yeah. Actually, a really cool car right now. Back then, it was okay. But I had a stick shift on the floor. She had to learn how to drive a stick, all that kind of stuff. So anyway, so she got the benefit of the car, right? So we moved to Cleveland. We got married uh, in Toledo, Ohio, wandered around Toledo, house sitting for people. And then we moved to Cleveland where I could take my new job as both a Young Life staff person on the east side of Cleveland and as a Presbyterian youth director. Now, if you know anything about 
Christian jobs, there's no such thing as a half-time job. I mean, usually, doesn't matter, they expect you to do all the duties that are associated, and so you end up working at least like three-quarter time, three-quarter time, which means that you're working morning, noon, and night, and sometimes the weekend, which wasn't a problem for me because I loved my job. It's what I always wanted to do. I had been teaching, and I always wanted to be in ministry, finally was in ministry, finally was married to the girl of my dreams. It was great. And if you remember what I said last week, I was so dedicated to my job and gone so much that Mary was feeling like a maid and a mistress meaning she would clean the apartment and she would cook for us, and then, you know, we could have conjugal relations at night when I was off of work, which worked for me just really well, really well. Um, didn't work for her quite as well. Um, <clears throat> so there was friction, right? And like I said, the hard parts in her heart were rubbing against the hard parts in my heart, and the hearts were starting to be softened, but it's a you know, a process that involves a lot of friction, and sometimes if the you know, friction gets too great, you know, fires erupt, you know, scary stuff happens. And such was the case with the car, because we both had jobs. She was working part-time, I was working, you know, full-time or more, and so she wanted to use the car one day, and I wanted to use the car one day, and we could not come to an agreement. I wanted her to take the public transportation. She wanted me to take the public transportation. I felt I had a good argument. She felt she had a good argument. And so I just finally said, hey, it's my car. I mean, like, just two months ago, wasn't yours. My name's still in the title. I win. Well, not according to Mary. Because um, what she did was, since she had lived in Cleveland before and I hadn't, she just was using the car that day, and when she went to park it that night, she just hit it. Somewhere in the neighborhood around our apartment. It was hidden. So in the morning, I have to leave first. I'm going, where's the car? She won't tell me. I go, where's the car? I, I'm supposed to use the car. She's not talking. I get really, really, really upset. And then, you know, make a phone call or go take public transportation, whatever I did, so she takes the car. This happens for days. I'm searching the neighborhoods around the apartment because I'm figuring she can't be walking too far. One day I find the car, and I've got my set of keys, and so I open the car up, I open the hood up, I take the distributor cap off. And then lock the car back up and go back to the apartment, knowing that she's got to leave first the next day. <laughs> next day, of course, the car won't start. I go, really? Where is it? <laughs> she tells me, I go, well... I guess you'll have to take public transportation to work. I'll go look at the car. I just went, put the distributor cap back on, took off for work. It was great. Um, one time we were fighting about something. I don't know what it was because we were always fighting. Um, and Mary decides that she's going to get the last say. So I come home from wherever I was. I go to open the apartment door, 
the apartment door. And it goes, chunk. Going, what? And I try to open it again, like, chunk. And I realize a chain lock has been installed on the molding of the apartment door and the door itself. Mary is inside the apartment watching television. I'm calling out in between the door and the door jam. It's about this wide. Mary! Mary! Open the door! Nothing. I'm knocking, you know. Mary! It's me! Open the door! Why do you have a lock on the door? There was one, wasn't one there this morning. I hear her laughing at the television set inside. I get really, really upset. I go to the hardware store. I buy a pair of um, um, bolt cutters. I go back to the apartment. I open the door again. Mary, open the door! For crying out loud, open the door! This is stupid! Ha, 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 ha. Mary says... The scariest thing was seeing those bolt cutters come through the little tiny opening <laughs> in the door, snip, snip, and then I'm in. And of course, then it's a full-on fight. Such was our first year of marriage. You put that together with the story I told you last week, you can understand why I really was afraid that Mary was contacting the priest who had done our wedding, who now lived in Cleveland, to maybe annul it or something. You know, Catholics have ways of doing that. I mean, that us other non-Catholics have no idea of. And so uh, I thought for sure we were headed toward divorce, but no. There was just more of the loofah effect to come, because as my former pastor used to tell me that marriage is God's seminary for character. And I had a lot of learning to do. So this week we're going to go over the same passage went over last week. It's the Word of God, folks. I don't think we can dig too deeply here. So again, uh, I made up the chapter titles on my own. These are not inspired. <laughs> These are not from God. These are from the mind of Mike Sayers. So uh, the first one is diagnosis cardiosclerosis. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea across the Jordan. Now, just so you know, this is where not too long ago John the Baptist had been preaching. Remember the story of John the Baptist? Remember what happened to him there? He had been preaching against the remarriage of Herod Antipas, the king of that region. Because what had happened was, is Herod had taken his brother's wife to be his own wife. Herodias had divorced Philip, Herod's brother, and then married Herod Antipas, and John the Baptist was saying, hey, you're the ruler of Israel. This is not right. You shouldn't be doing this. And for that prophetic word, he got his head chopped off. This is the same region. 
Crowds of people came to him, as was his custom. Jesus taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? There's a loaded question, time and place and context, right? If you're trying to trip up Jesus, what better question to ask him right in that same place? Because maybe you're trying to get rid of Jesus. But Jesus outsmarts them. What did Moses command you, he replied. That's verse 3. Verse 4, they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. The next section I call God's heart for marriage. So we go from hard hearts to God's heart. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So God didn't plan for marriage to be ended. God gave permission for divorce, although that was not his intention. Verse 10, Consequences of Hard-Heartedness. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. This passage seems to trip a lot of people up. We didn't talk much about it last time. We're going to talk more about it this time. In the Gospel of Matthew, the disciples actually have a reaction to this statement from Jesus. The reaction is, holy crap. That's not literal. But but they're saying, well, if that's the case, then it's better for a man not to get married because we kind of like the fact that we can divorce a wife at will. All we got to do is write her a certificate of divorce and send her away. That's very convenient for us. And now, Jesus, you're saying we shouldn't do that, which takes us out of the driver's seat, and we don't like that. So maybe it's better not to get married at all. And then Jesus goes off on that tangent. But still, they didn't like it, see? It was a tough teaching even back then, as it is now. Jesus' response to soft hearts. Verse 13, People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. Now, this little vignette occurs after the same discourse in Matthew as it does here. Uh, And we're led to wonder why it's placed here, because it seems odd. It seems misplaced. Like, all of a sudden, are we talking about children, or are we talking about divorce and remarriage and adultery? What are we talking about, Jesus? How come all of a sudden, now, Mark puts it here, Matthew puts it there. There's got to be a reason. I think there is. I think it's the Jesus response to the hearts of little children. I want to talk about this. 
quickly, I want to go over four points from this passage. These are things that I didn't say specifically last time, but I'm going to say them this time. And number one, God doesn't want people to divorce. That's what I get from Mark chapter 10, this part. God's intention was not that way. Jesus goes back to the beginning, back to Genesis. He's saying God's intention was they would stay together for life. Why? I think it's because it's the way that God loves us, His people, the church. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He wanted something that reflected that in our human existence, something we could point to and say, that's the way that God loves us, is that He's with us all the time. He won't leave us when we're not pretty anymore or when we're slackers or whatever. He'll stay with us. Now, when people get married, they get married in a variety of ways. They get married emotionally. Maybe sometimes right off the bat. You see somebody, you're excited about the way they look, uh, you're excited about the way they move, and your heart's all a flutter. you get twitter-pated, and next thing you know, you're asking each other out. You're spending more and more time. Emotionally, you become bonded. You really like to hang out with each other. There's electricity in the air. There's romance in bloom, right? So I think that we're sometimes we're, we're bonded, we're married emotionally, sometimes way before the wedding. You wouldn't think about dating anybody else because you're so in love with the person that you're seeing, right? So emotional bonding is one way we bond in marriage. Another way we, we, we bond is... Um, is intellectually. You know, sometimes we're friends first, and this becomes off uh, fairly easy. We find out we have the same ideas, we have the same causes that we're passionate about. We, we like to do the same kinds of things, whether it's fixed-wheel bicycling or climbing mountains or, you know, metal music. Doesn't matter. We, we found somebody that thinks like us, there's, there's an intellectual bonding that's taking place, right? We also get married on a, a legal level. When you go down to the courthouse, that Denver City and County building, they'll give you a paper, right? And this paper is supposed to be filled out by you and your witnesses and the person performing the marriage ceremony so that the state of Colorado, the city of Denver, knows that you two are married. It's on record. It's a legal thing. So you get married legally as well. Another way you get married is you get married spiritually. Now, very often we do this before God with a pastor in front of a congregation. There's a societal aspect to it as well. The community of God in front of the person of God. We're making a covenant that surpasses what the state requires. We're saying, I will love you for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, all the days of my life until death do us part. We are making that kind of commitment. It's a covenant. It's saying, I'm doing this. And when we leave that church, or we leave that wedding up in the mountains, wherever it's at, we are married spiritually, soul to soul, in the eyes of God. And then there's the physical marriage. It's sometimes, I mean, if you're 
doing it the way God prescribed, that'll happen after the wedding. And so you become one flesh during your honeymoon sometime. And there's a physical bonding, which the Apostle Paul says goes beyond just mere physicality. It's not like masturbating inside another person or with another person. There's a, a, a holy union that takes place in the physical act of marriage. There's a bonding. It's a special kind of thing, soul to soul. You're glued together. And sometimes the financial marriage takes place even after the honeymoon is over. You know, you had money tied up with your family, and he had money tied up with his family, and you got to get, you know, all those entanglements cut off, and so you can finally bring your finances together, and you get a combined checking account or whatever you do to bring your finances together. I mean, so you see, marriage is a multiple-layered kind of a thing, right? And God planned for it to be that way. Now, God permitted divorce because of the hardness of human hearts. That's point number two. God permitted divorce because of the hardness of human hearts. I have very seldom, if ever, found two totally innocent parties in a divorce. I've never found one innocent party in a divorce. I've usually seen two at least partially guilty parties in a divorce. Most divorces I know don't start with the legal divorce papers. Divorce has taken place some time previously. The biggest sham, I think, is when you're divorced emotionally, you're divorced intellectually, you're divorced financially, you're divorced physically, and the only thing holding you together is that little piece of paper that says you're married. That's still, in God's eyes, I believe, something of a divorce. It's not totally completed yet, but how dare anybody who's in a situation like that throw stones at somebody who goes the whole distance and gets the papers signed in a court of law. It's hypocrisy. I'm not condoning divorce. I'm just trying to be honest. Jesus permitted divorce because of the hardness of human hearts. At somewhere along the way, someone's heart got hard, the other one's heart got hard, and there was no more of the loofah effect. They weren't trying anymore, and the hearts became more and more and more and more calloused until finally it was over. Even if one party is more innocent than the other, there comes a place at which the people I know who are divorced just can't take it anymore. These people that I'm talking about are devoted Christ followers. They really want to make it work. They've tried their hardest, and they finally hit the wall. They can't do it anymore. I remember 
One of my friends is a pastor. For years, married, four children, who said, I felt like a drowning man going down for the third time. I, 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 was, I was done. I couldn't do it. She was in love with somebody else, and, and I, I couldn't muster it up anymore. I went and I got the papers signed. Or another person I know who tried like crazy to get her husband to listen. To get a bit of softness, something that she could work with, and she couldn't, and she couldn't, and she couldn't, and she couldn't, and years went by, and counseling appointments went by, and visits to the pastor's office went by, and everything went by until finally she was done. She was going crazy. She couldn't handle it anymore. She was losing her mind. The hard-heartedness is a fact of the human existence. It's not a judgment from God. Jesus is just stating the obvious. Moses permitted divorce because of the hardness of your human hearts. Honestly, God doesn't give permission like this for very many sins. Divorce is a sin. But you don't hear him say, it's okay to rob a bank in these certain circumstances. I'll give you a pass if you want to go rob something. Now, there may be a lesser penalty if you're hungry and trying to feed your kids, but you know it's still a crime and you still got to pay in the Old Testament. I don't know very many sins where God gives permission. Why would he do that? We can only imagine. My guess is, is because it would stop some greater evil from occurring than the divorce itself. That it was some kind of a a boundary that he's placing so that things don't become more wicked or more evil or harder of heart. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's what God wanted. I'm saying what Jesus is saying. Can we somehow just agree that if one was somehow able to stay married, no matter how hard the scenario, that that would be preferable in God's eyes. Can we agree with that? I think we can. This is a tough one. What I'm asking you to do is hold two things in tension here. I'm asking you to hold grace over here and truth over here and not let go of either one of them. The truth of the matter is, is God wants marriage to be permanent for the lives of those married. On the other hand, he allows divorce. 
I, I don't know what to do with that. I, I don't want to ping pong back and forth. I want to hold those two in tension. It's not a problem to be solved. It's a tension to be managed in the life of the believer. Okay, it's going to get even harder now. Point number three. Adultery is committed against the first spouse by divorced people who remarry. Adultery is committed against the first spouse when divorced people remarry. That's what Jesus says. The disciples didn't like it. I don't like it. And probably you don't like it. But that's what he said. Marriage is a covenant before God. And adultery is breaking that covenant. It's going to be with somebody else. On any number of levels. Marriage is like taking two pieces of cardboard and gluing them together. Matter of fact, if I took two pieces of cardboard, I glued them together, and I said, okay, this is the bonding of one man and one woman in an emotional sense. Then I take two more, and I say, this is the bonding of a man and woman in an intellectual sense. And I take two more and I say, this is the bonding of a man and woman in a physical sense. And then I take two more and I say, this is the bonding of a man and woman in a spiritual sense. And I go on and on and on. I have all these ways we're married that we are glued together. And when divorce happens, those two pieces of cardboard are ripped apart. And you take one of those pieces of cardboard and you go glue it to somebody else's piece of cardboard is what Jesus is talking about. You have broken a covenant. It's a tearing. I don't think it's a tearing like, you know, every single day that you're married to somebody new that you are then committing adultery. That's not what it's saying. It's saying the covenant was broken. It was torn apart. You were separated from one another, and now you're going to somebody else in that way, in a very basic sense, in a dictionary definition kind of a way, you are committing adultery against the person with whom you were glued with the first time. It's just descriptive. Now, Obviously, marriages can be mended. Mine was mended on a variety of levels by the grace of God through the church of Jesus Christ and through um, counselors that Mary and I went to. And so, I can't take any credit for the fact that our marriage is vibrant, wonderful to this day. I have no idea. I don't even deserve it. This is such a different stance than I had when I first got married when I thought Mary had won the husband lottery. 
I am now a man who stands in awe of God's grace in my marriage. I have, even, I have no idea except that he used other people to do something in our marriage. I, I just don't know. I don't know why my marriage survived and other people's didn't. I, I don't know why. All I know is it's the grace of God. I stand in awe of God's mercy on my behalf. Trust me, it had been left up to me. We went and we divorced. I had a place to go. There's a time when I had a woman that I wanted to be with. I met her at work. She was having a hard time in her marriage. I was having a hard time in mine. We could literally commiserate with one another. She thought I was cool, which is something I had not had somebody feel like in a long time. And I thought she was cool, which I'm sure is something she had not felt in a long time. I was committing emotional adultery against my wife. In my head, in my heart, I was tearing those two pieces of cardboard together and I was beginning to think about attaching it to somebody else. Did I sin against my wife? You betcha I did. Jesus is right in the Scriptures when He says this. I mean, how bad would it have been if I had decided to take this woman on some kind of a cruise or, or, or pay for things that she needed? I would have been sinning financially, committing adultery financially against my wife, wouldn't I have? Jesus said in Matthew 5 that any man who looks on a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I made this point last week. We are all in the same boat. We are all under the judgment of God in that regard. So, you know, don't think you're so cool. Or don't think somebody else is so bad. Rather, that might be the bigger problem that that woman over there or that man over there who has committed adultery, that person is so much worse than I am. I would never do that. You don't know what you would do if you were in that situation. And if you've even had fantasies about somebody else, you're just as guilty in God's eyes as that person is. Again, folks, this is not a problem to be solved. This is a tension to be managed. This is the truth. Now comes the grace. Point number four. Divorced, married, remarried, adulterous, or single people should receive the kingdom of God like a little child. Jesus is indignant with his followers when they get in the way of the people bringing their children to him, right? Don't you dare, church, 
ever, ever prevent someone who's divorced, someone who's remarried, someone who is in an adulterous relationship from coming to Jesus. Don't ever do that. If their heart is soft and they want to be with Jesus, by all means, usher them in. Don't keep them out. There's something about the heart. I wonder about the disciples. I wonder how they could have kept those people away from Jesus. And this is my theory. My theory is they thought they were all that. My theory is they didn't see themselves as despicable, adulterous sinners. My theory is that somehow they either did not see themselves as as sinners or they felt like they had to pay the price for their own sin. If we can't accept Jesus' grace, then we can't extend it to other people. If we judge ourselves and we try to pay for our sins by being better people, got to try harder, then we're going to make everybody else try harder to be good Christians. You see what I'm saying? If you don't receive the grace, you can't extend it. If you take the judgment on yourself and try to pay for your own sins by your own good actions, that's what you expect from everybody else. The key, I think, here to have a soft heart is to acknowledge the sin in our own lives. That we're just as bad as everybody else. And that we need to repent to turn around from that sin. Why do you think I tell you what a creep I am as a husband? I mean, seriously, think about this for a minute. Really? I mean, does this make me look any better to anybody? It's not easy for me to get up here and tell you that I'm a jerk. But I do that on purpose to help you do the same. Because I know that when you admit your own unseemliness before God, your own unloveliness, your own sinfulness, that you are then on the threshold of receiving the grace and mercy of God, which far surpasses anything you could do to make yourself righteous. And when you do that, then you can have mercy for other people, no matter how messed up they are. And you will bring them to Jesus as opposed to keeping them away. All right. I want to leave some time for questions and answers. Please, just questions, no comments. I'll try to repeat your questions so everybody can hear. Touchy subject, difficult subject. Uh, Don't be embarrassed if you're confused or if, if you're upset. It's okay. So go ahead. Uh, one more time. Can you commit adultery before you're married? Great question. Of course you can. If you... Technically, if you have sex with a married person, you're committing adultery. Um, If you have sex with an unmarried person and you're unmarried, 
then it's what the Bible calls fornication. They're both sexual sins. They're both the kinds of sins that Jesus talks about in Matthew as uh, being, you know, making you guilty. Um, so technically, uh, that's how it works. Um, I've heard some Christians say, well, if you have sex with somebody else and he eventually becomes somebody else's wife, then you've committed adultery with that person. But, you know, I don't like to go that far. It's bad enough as fornication. It doesn't matter. You're still a sinner. You're still breaking the, the heart of God and your own heart and your own future uh, is compromised as well. So it's going to bring you farther away from God, farther away from other people. So it's still sin. Yeah, John, roll out. Okay, the question is, if someone is divorced and that person remarries, is it the remarrying that is the committing the adultery, or is it every time that person has sex with the new spouse? I would say the former, not the latter. It's the breaking of a covenant, basically, and once the covenant is broken, it's broken. Um, uh, Deuteronomy 24.1, let me read this. This might come in handy. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her away from the house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That will be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Obviously, a rule uh, through the law of Moses to Israel. Um, I think we can surmise from the passage that even the Pharisees were quoting that when there was a divorce, it was a divorce. You were separated. As a matter of fact, it would have been a worse evil for a woman to go back and marry her first husband with whom she had, because the bond was broken. So my guess is no. I don't think that the Word of God supports that every, yeah, I think that's ridiculous, that every time you have sex with your new spouse, you can make adultery. No, the bond was broken the first time and it's done. That's the way I read it. Uh, yeah, Benjamin, question? question is, if you did not remarry after a divorce, and then years later you recognize, you reconcile with your former spouse, who is also not remarried, then I think God rejoices in that thing. I really do. Um, I, I think that that works very, very well, uh, as far as he's concerned. I, I had a friend like that. Um, i never forget this. Uh, Jim and Deborah were divorced before I met Jim. Um, and then, you know, he and I were buddies at church, and they had a little girl, and 
pretty soon Deborah started coming around to the church, and Jim was so upset. What is she doing here? This is my turf, you know. Like I got this church, she should go someplace else. And uh, but she kept coming around, and pretty soon the leaders of the church said, Jim, maybe God's doing something here to restore your marriage, which Jim did not want restored because he was very hurt by the divorce. Um, But because he was a man under authority, a godly man who listened to the counsel of the pastors of the church who said, you may want to take a second look and see if God's doing something, he actually went ahead against his feelings and started to spend time with his ex-wife uh, I remember being at their wedding. Their little girl was the flower girl. It was beautiful. They had another son, uh, and they're married to this day. So, yeah, I think uh, in that case, both God and the church uh, did a wondrous thing. Yeah, real loud. You might have to come closer because this is really loud over here. But what if you're already, what if you've already divorced and you're already remarried? What's the question after that? <laughs> you're screwed? No, you're not. I mean, I hope there's a lot of screwing on and going on in the second marriage. Um, <laughs> that would be my hope, anyway. And I'm sure it will be your second husband's hope. Um, I'm not trying to embarrass you. I, I, no, I, I really think that um, you got a second chance to make it work. And I think God wants that to work out just as much as you do. Um, maybe more than you do. I think he would want it to work out. Um, you know... It's difficult when you read a passage like this to remember that Jesus wants all of us to come to him. Um, there's a, uh, a great passage, Romans chapter 3. Put that up, will you, Mark? Read this. Romans chapter 3, verses 20 through 23. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight, as God's sight, by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. And I could say that from the things that Jesus said, the law that Jesus has laid down, we have become conscious of sin in the last, you know, half an hour or so. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the good news. This is... This is forgiveness. This is a second chance. This is, you know, none of us can get it right. And so if you've been married and you've been divorced and you're remarried, God is is for you. Because you're just like everybody else. You need grace and mercy in your life in Christ to make it minute by minute, let alone 50 years in marriage. Did I answer your question? Mostly? 
Well, I'll tell you what, afterwards, you come up to me and we'll talk about the part that I didn't answer, okay? All right, anybody else? Other questions? And Yeah, go ahead. Would God then sanctify that second marriage? Because there doesn't seem to be any talk about, about that. Um, yes, definitely. God will. Um, case in point, David and Bathsheba. Now, obviously it wasn't a divorce. It was worse than a divorce. Uh, David, King David, one of the ancient kings of Israel, ends up having an affair with the wife of one of his officers while he's away at war. She gets pregnant, and so David tries to get the officer to come back from war, sleep with his wife, to deceive him so that he thinks the kid is his. But this guy is so faithful to his troops in the field, he goes, far be it for me to go to the comfort of my wife's arms when all the king's men are out in the battlefield. I'm not going to do a thing like that. Great leader. You want leaders like this, right? Terrific leader. David's ticked off. David tries to get him drunk. Make him go sleep with his wife. The guy still won't do it. So what David does is the next best thing, I guess, if you're the king. He gives orders to make sure that the commanding general puts this officer in a place of the battle where he'll surely get killed. And so the guy gets killed. And then um, David uh, marries his wife. Now, there's some consequence to that you can read about in uh, Second Kings. But um, bottom line is, is that after David pays the consequence, after um, God reprimands him and his repentance and soft-hearted again, God totally blesses the second marriage so that he and Bathsheba have King Solomon, who becomes the wisest and the richest king of all of Israel, and is also the avenue for the Messiah to come. So, does God bless second marriages? I think if he blessed that one, I think everybody else's is a piece of cake. That's what I think. So, um, other questions? Maybe one more. I'm not sure what time is it here. Oh, my gosh. Is there one up to the balcony? Yeah, go ahead. Roll out. What's the role of a friend in a situation where all are Christians and two of your friends are thinking about getting divorced? Oh, man, Ross, this is a tough one. Because you've got to hold truth and grace together intention. I'll never forget, I was the uh, best man at my buddy's wedding. We were both young. He was married before me. And um, I thought he was nuts. I thought he was getting married too young and too soon. But they got married. They had a few kids. I got married. Um, and then things kind of went awry. I mean, she and I don't know what happened at the house, but obviously her 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 heart became hard toward him. She ended up having an affair with some other guy. Um, she ended up uh, leaving him. And uh, the whole time, you know, I am trying to, to get him to, to not 
divorce her. But um, he, uh, he couldn't take anymore. Couldn't take it. And so they divorced. Sometime later, she repented. And um, she wanted to come back. And I begged my friend to take her back. And he would not. And I remember him saying to me, Look, Mike, I've moved on. If you can't move on too, then you can't be my friend. At which point, what am I going to do as a friend? I'm going to say, It's your walk with God. It's between you and the Lord. We're friends of this day. Um, but it got real strained there for a while because I was fighting like crazy. I mean, as best man, I take on certain responsibilities at the wedding, right? That's what you do. You're a witness. You sign the paper. I was trying to fulfill those duties as a best man. And, um, yeah. So, you know, truth in one hand, grace in the other. And, you know, hopefully the relationship can survive. Sometimes they listen. Sometimes they don't. But if Jesus is going to forgive him, I'm not going to hold it against him. All right. We're going to have uh, some prayer over here. Uh, if, if you have some issues that this passage of Scripture has raised and you would like to pray with somebody, please go to the prayer room uh, during the last song set here and pray with somebody. I know that these are difficult, difficult issues. Um, please pray with me to close. Jesus, thank you for being a merciful, loving Savior. Thank you for being righteous in all your ways. And thank you for telling us the truth, as hard as it might be. Thank you also for forgiving us through your death on the cross. These things are difficult to hold in my mind at one time, Lord, but I do believe them. In your name I pray for all of us. Amen.